How Readest Thou? I think it was about two, three years ago she read this book and ever since then she's been telling me, James, you have to read this book. You have to read it. I'm studying for seminary Greek and Hebrew and she's telling me I, gotta, I have to read this book. And I'm reading through, I'm preparing for Sunday messages. She's telling me you have to read this book. Well, finally, it's been sitting on my desk for at least a year. She had given it to me, her copy. And this Monday, past Monday, I opened it and started reading. And it was a sweet, nourishing, rebuking, challenging, inspiring book. So beneficial to my soul. I was so impressed. I told my wife, how come you never told me about this book? Maybe you've been keeping it from you all this time. It has been instrumental for our study this morning on the spiritual discipline of reading God's Word. And I was so encouraged, and I love the Puritans for many reasons, but one of which is the copyright has expired. They're all free on the net. And so I downloaded it. I had the publishing ministry printed out, and there's a copy for each and every one of you after service. And I would hope that God would lead you um, to a place where you'll be able to read this book in solitude and quietness and benefit from it as I have from it as well. I'll be quoting from it extensively uh, through, in our study together. I feel like when I read these Puritans, um, you know, my words are so feeble compared to theirs. My thoughts are so shallow and um, just weak compared to theirs. I'd rather hear from the Puritan divines than hear my own thoughts about the scriptures. And that is why I quote so much from these um, writers. Well, the principal thesis of our study is this. It has been this for several weeks. That physical discipline is required to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Our Lord is left. He is gone. He's left us a paraclete, a helper. We are under His care. And to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be influenced, led by the Holy Spirit, requires our labor requires our effort. It is not automatic. We don't get zapped with it. It is not an experience. It is a process that occurs by our efforts to grow in holiness and maturity. Physical effort is required, is an utmost necessity. There is only one road to growth. There are no shortcuts. This testimony of the Bible, it is clear. We looked at some verses last week. 1 Timothy 4, 7, Paul told Timothy, have nothing to do with these myths, these fables, these made-up stories about how to be godly, some kind of formulaic approach to spirituality. Timothy, have nothing to do with such, such understanding. Instead, train yourself for godliness. The Bible is clear that spiritual growth is gained through physical work, through hard labor. There is simply no other way to attain true maturity. So I narrowed it down to five irreducible spiritual disciplines. We covered two in the past two weeks. The first one was the mortification of sin. Colossians 3, 5. Though Christ is ruling in our hearts, Though sin is no longer our master, sin is waging guerrilla warfare against our souls. 
Therefore, though it is dead, we must kill sin in our lives. We must mortify it, put to death the sins that are in our members. So mortification of sin. The second spiritual discipline was redeeming the time. Redeeming the time. There is nothing more precious and yet nothing of which men are more wasteful than time. So if we want to be godly, we need to learn to be wise. Understand God's will. And what is that? It means to redeem the time to know Christ and to make Him known. For those of you who recently joined our church about a year ago, as a body, we discovered Pastor Piper's book, Don't Waste Your Life. It has had a transforming power in my Christian walk, talking to my wife and our family and definitely our church. If you have not read that book, pick up a copy and read Don't Waste Your Life. How do you not waste your life by not wasting your years? How do you not waste your years by not wasting your months? How do you not waste your months by not wasting this week? How do you not waste your week by not wasting this day? How do you not waste this day by not wasting this hour? Your whole life is wasted if you see to your heart a little slumber, a little sleep, a little folding of the arms to rest. You waste that hour, becomes a day, becomes a week, becomes months, becomes years, and it's your life. You've wasted your life. Therefore, if you want to be godly, we need to learn how, you need to learn how to redeem the time, redeem this hour. Now, there are three more spiritual disciplines required for godliness. And today's exercise, I want to press before you is the discipline of reading God's Word. The discipline of reading God's Word. Now that word discipline, it can insinuate, it can suggest a faulty mindset as if it is something that we have to do. It is something that goes against the grain of our hearts. Something that we have to force ourselves against our will. But in fact, that is not the case. The reality, the truth is that the godly man loves the Word of God. Godly woman loves God's Word. When a man comes to Christ and is in Christ, all of a sudden, he loves the Word. A radical transformation of his desires has taken place. His appetite, her appetite, has been changed by God. Before, they hated God's law. They hated it. Their soul rose up against it. Romans 8, 7, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. So before Christ, a sinner would look at the Word of God, and because of its holiness, they would hate God's Word, because God's Word would expose our sinfulness. Expose our evil and our depravity. Because every line of the law is holy and it judged the sins of man, men hated it apart from Christ. They hated it for the unchangeableness of the Word of God, its strictness. There was no gray area. There was no flexibility. There was no bending in the Word of God. And because of our uh, sinful state, we hated Scripture. But as soon as one is saved by Christ. Soon as his sins are forgiven, and their eyes are opened, and they have hope in Christ, 
Everything has changed. And the first thing is the perspective of the Word of God. God gives this man, this woman, new affections, new desires, new appetites for God's Word. What was, what was once left a bitter taste in his mouth, it is now sweet and it is most desirable. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, 14, 16, I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Psalm 119.54, your decrees are the theme of my song wherever I lodge. Wherever I am, I'm singing the words of God. Psalm 119.71, this psalmist views his life in terms of his relationship with God's word. If anything brings, brings him closer to God's word, he says it's good. So much so, he says, it was good that I was afflicted. In that car accident, that was good. That illness in our family, that was good. Man, we went through that financial strain in our family. That was so good. So that I might learn your decrees. Verse 77, the law, 72, The law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and of gold. Verse 97 says, Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Verse 129, your statutes are wonderful. Verse 131, Psalm says, I open my mouth and I pant, longing for your commands. Pastor Rao said, when the Holy Ghost raises a man from the death of sin and makes him a new creature in Jesus Christ, the new principle in that man's heart requires food. And the only food that will sustain and satisfy is the Word of God. There never was a man or woman truly converted who did not love the revealed will of God. Just as a child born into the world will desire the milk provided for its nourishment, so does a soul born again desire the sincere milk of the Scriptures. This is a common mark of all children of God. They delight in the law of the Lord. Show me a man who despises Bible reading or thinks little of biblical preaching, and I hold it to be a certain fact that he is not yet born again. He may be zealous about forms and ceremonies. He may be diligent in religion and daily services. But if these things are more precious to him than the Bible, I cannot think of him as a converted man. Tell me what the Bible is to a man, and I will generally tell you what he is. This is the pulse to try. This is the barometer to look at. If we would know the state of the heart, I have no notion of the Spirit dwelling in a man and not giving clear evidence of His presence. And I believe it to be a single evidence of the Spirit's presence when the Word is really precious to a man's soul. And I have seen this time and again of many in this very church. You came to church one Sunday as a man didn't trespass, a man separate from Christ. And all of a sudden, God saves your soul. And immediately, you love the Word of God. Some of you guys tell me, I've never finished a book in my life, James. Right? I hate reading. I mean, I went through high school and college without, without reading. I would read in between commercials. Right? I, would, I, would, I couldn't finish Cliff Notes. That was, that's my testimony. 
Right? But now I love the Word of God. Where did this come from? I see it now in my own dad's life. My dad was sharing with us how he has several regrets in his life. And he was telling me how he regrets his opposition to my pursuit of Christ and pursuit of God's Word and pursuit of ministry. He said, it's such a good thing. The Word of God is so sweet. My mom's telling me that he's staying up till 1 to 2 in the morning reading the Bible. And she's been married to this guy for 30 plus years. And she's telling me, who is this guy? Who am I married to? The stranger. I mean, he leads family worship. He's praying for the family. And he's reading the Bible and he enjoys it. And my dad's frustration is he gets so tired too quickly. He, he wished he had the strength so he could study the Bible longer. This is the testimony of conversion, of a regenerate heart. Godly man, godly woman loves the Word of God. That is the biblical reality. So for some of you, it's a newfound love, this love for the Scriptures. For others, you've been a Christian for a while. You've been a believer for quite many years. and You've forgotten just how sweet the Word of God is, how precious it is, why we ought to love the Word of God so. To that end, turn with me to Psalm 19. Let's consider together six reasons, six reasons why the godly love the Bible. These are six unique benefits of the Word of God found only in the Scriptures. And this is why we love Scripture. When someone asks you, what's, what's with these Christians? You Bible-loving, you guys worship the Bible? Are you guys committing bibliolatry? Why do you care and love and revere the Bible so much? How can you handle 40, 50 minute sermons and then have second hour for another sermon? And then during flock, you got another Bible study. What's with you guys? Turn to Psalm 19 and say, well, I'll give you six reasons why I love the Bible. Why I study it so much. That's why I love the written word. That's why I love it when somebody preaches the written word of God. That's why I love studying it, meditating upon it. That's why I love speaking about it. These are the reasons. In Psalm 19, David employs six designations to describe the Word of God. They're all synonymous. The law, the testimony, the precepts, the commandment, the fear of the Lord, the rules of the Lord. These are all different ways, different titles for the Word of God. He goes on to highlight the unique benefits to anyone who reads the Word. The first reason for our love of the Bible is found in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The law, the Torah of God, the Torah of Yahweh, the instruction, the teaching of God, referring not just to the Ten Commandments, not just to the first five books of the Old Testament, referring to the totality of God's revealed will, written down in Scripture, David says, the Torah, the instruction, the teachings, the doctrine of Yahweh, it is perfect. It is complete. It lacks nothing. Perfect in terms of its purity. It is without error, without contamination. It is unerring in its statements, teachings, and commands. Not only that, it is perfect in the sense of its completion. It is sufficient in and of itself. At every moment in progression, progression of, of revelation, when God said, I am who I am, that was sufficient, that was complete, that was perfect. When God revealed to him the Ten Commandments, right then, even that part was complete. 
When the Old Testament canon was finished, those 39 books was complete, was sufficient. And now we have the full canon. 66 books of the Old and New Testament. Testimony is still clear. The Word of God is sufficient. And this unique, perfect, complete Word of God accomplishes what nothing else can. Nothing else can. It revives the soul. Revives the soul. New American Standard Version says restoring the soul. King James Version says converting the soul. The King James Version has what I believe the more, most correct translation. The Hebrew word is shawab. The literal meaning is to turn back. The Word of God is perfect. And it only, it's the only power that is in the world that turns back a sinner. Converts a sinner. Saves the lost. Grand salvation. Second Timothy 3.15 Paul talks about the Holy Scriptures which is able to make us wise unto salvation. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, When I came to you, I resolved to know nothing. The Greeks want wisdom, the Jews want signs, but I want to preach Christ and Him crucified so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, man's wisdom, but on God's power. And what is God's power? What is the dunamis of God? Romans 1.16, the gospel of God, the word of God. It's the power that saves a man from sin on to eternal life. Ryle says again, the Bible applied to the heart by the Holy Ghost is the grand instrument by which souls are first converted to God. That mighty change is wrought by the Scriptures. In this way, the Bible has worked moral miracles by thousands. The Bible has made drunkards sober. Unchaste people become pure. Thieves become honest. Violent temple people become meek. It has wholly altered the course of men's lives. It has caused their old things to pass away and made all their ways new. It has taught worldly people to seek first the kingdom of God. The word of God has taught lovers of pleasure to become lovers of God. It has taught the streams of men's affections to run upwards rather than running downwards. It has made men think of heaven instead of always thinking of earth. And live by faith instead of living by sight. All this has been done because of the Word of God. The first reason we love God's Word is because it saves. The Word of God saved us. And it is powerful to save others. Second reason, that the testimony of the Lord is sure. Making wise the simple. The testimony of the Lord is morally to be true or certain. The Hebrew word implies that the Word of God is so firm, steadfast, that the Word of God is worthy of our trust, worthy of our faith. It is firm. The Word of God is not vacillating. It's not unsettled. It is not blown and tossed by the wind. It doesn't shift like shadows. It doesn't vacillate, go to and fro. It is firm. It cannot be shaken. It is firmly established. And because of that, makes the makes wise the simple, gives wisdom to the foolish. And that's who we are. As men, we are foolish. We are without discernment. 
without insight, without understanding. We need help. We need insight to, to know how to serve our wives, how to love and care for them. We need, wives need insight on how to honor their husbands and help them in their ministry, in their lives. We need wisdom to how to raise our family, to teach our children, to train and discipline them. We need wisdom how to handle finances, how to relate to this world, how to serve God, how to lead the church. Life requires much wisdom, and the scripture gives us that wisdom. Ralph said again, how deep is the wisdom contained in the Bible? I can well understand an old divine saying, give me a candle and a Bible and shut me up in a dark dungeon and I will tell you all that the world is doing. Proverbs 8.5 says, you who are simple, gain wisdom. You who are foolish, gain understanding. Walk in the way of wisdom, which is the scriptures. Third reason the godly love the Word of God is because it is Yashar. Verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are Yashar. They're straight. Scripture is united. It holds to one direction, one mind. It's one way, one teaching. It is not wavering. It doesn't bind us with double speak. It doesn't confuse us. It doesn't lead us astray by contradicting itself. The Word of God is, has integrity through and through. 66 books, 40 different authors, 3 different continents, 3 different languages, written over 2,000 years. And yet it has one clear, coherent, unified message. Therefore, it rejoices the heart. Rejoices the heart. The Hebrew word there is samak. A word rich in significance. It's the idea of lasting joy. The idea of true happiness. idea of internal satisfaction. We see our Lord teaching this after His resurrection. Remember in Luke 24, after Christ's death, His crucifixion, these two disciples are walking towards the mouse and they're all distraught because their Lord and Master was crucified. And a stranger comes, walks alongside them and He asks these two disciples, why are you downcast? And the disciples said, haven't you heard what happened? Are you blind? Are you deaf? Didn't you hear about this man named Nazareth, from Nazareth who claimed to be the Messiah? The whole city was stirred. We thought he was the one who would bring consolation to Israel. What, don't you know that this three days ago that he was crucified and he died? And this stranger opens up the Word of God, begins to explain the Scriptures, the Old Testament truths, verses that testify that the Messiah will die, but He will rise again. And He will redeem His people from sin. And that in that instant, it was revealed that it was the Christ. And, this, and Christ hid from them and was gone. The disciples said to each other, verse 32, 
were not our hearts burning within us? While He talked with us on the road and opened the Scriptures to us, their testimony is, our hearts were on fire. Now why did Christ hide Himself? Why didn't He say, Disciple, this is me. I have risen. Be not afraid. Rejoice. Look at the marks on my hands, the piercing on my side. I have truly risen. Why did He hide Himself? He did that so that the believers might understand that the power and joy of the Christian life does not come from seeing the risen Lord. If that was the case, Christians throughout history would seek this experience with Christ. Christ did that so that the disciples would be an example of true joy. That joy comes from understanding the Word of God. When we read the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit illumines its truths, just like the disciples, our hearts burn within us. Our hearts are filled with samak, filled with joy as the Scriptures is opened up to us. Jeremiah fifteen sixteen. Jeremiah, in the midst of his trial and tribulation, in all his ministry, not a single convert, over 40 years of preaching the nation of Judah, no one believed in him. He said, when your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. Not the fruit of my ministry, there is none. Not the praise of people, no one praises me. Not because of the results of my efforts, my joy, my heart's delight is the Word of God. For I bear your name, O Lord God Almighty. Fourth reason why the godly love the Bible. The commandment, verse 8b, commandment of the Lord is pure. Free from all stain. Free from all inner imperfection, any corrupt tendency. And because it is so holy and pure, it opens the eyes. It gives enlightenment to our eyes. It causes our eyes to see and apprehend the truth. Let's go to the fifth one. The fear of the Lord is clean. As opposed to filthy and soiled. The sense is there is nothing here that tends to corrupt the morals or defiles the soul. Although the Bible talks about evil, talks about depravity and sin, in of itself it is clean, it is pure and holy, it endures forever, it stands firm in the heavens. Psalm 119 verse 89, because it is so pure, it is eternal. Everything else is temporary in this world, but the Word of God stands forever. And the final one, final reason is verse 9. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The Word of God is truth. They are not arbitrary. It is completely consistent with God Himself who is true. Because Psalm 31.5, God is a God of truth. Whatever He says is truth. Therefore the Word of God is truth. All together, all of it, every single verse, every word, every letter is righteous. Therefore, verse 10, it is more to be desired than gold, even fine gold. 
The word of God is sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. The sweetest substance known to man was honey. The word of God is sweeter. The most precious commodity was fine gold. The word of God is more precious. That is the truth about the word of God. Its value, its power, its sweetness, its desirability. The reasons for loving God's word is entirely justified. But sadly, there is an unspoken scandal in the church. The shameful scandal in the church. Let me read to you again, Pastor Ryle. I write this statement with sorrow. I dare say it will be received by some with surprise, if not with incredulity. But, but I write it down calmly and deliberately, and I am certain that it is true. I have no doubt that there are more Bibles at this moment than there ever were since the world began. There is more Bible buying and Bible selling, more Bible printing and Bible distributing than ever was. We see Bibles in every bookseller's shop, Bibles of every size, price, and style, Bibles great and Bibles small, Bibles for the rich and Bibles for the poor. But all this time, I fear we are in danger of forgetting that to have the Bible is one thing and to read it is quite another. I fear there are many parts of the Word which some people never read at all. I fear there are many parts of the Word which some people Never read at all. That is the truth, isn't it? Many who profess loudly their love for the Word of God. Well, I ask you this morning, do you read the Bible? You might have nice Bibles, expensive Bibles. You might have many Bibles. But do you, though profess your love and adoration, you praise the Scriptures, do you read the Bible this hypocrisy of professing love for the Scriptures but neglecting it is nothing new. It has been this way from the Bible. There are a thousand men who will fight for the Bible as to one who would read it. It has been this way even the times of the Puritans. Pastor Thomas Goodwin, while a student at Cambridge, took a journey to a city called Dedham to hear a Puritan pastor named Rogers preach the Word of God. In that sermon, the pastor fell into and reproach, reproaching the people about the neglect of the Bible. He, per, he, imperson, he impersonates God to the people, telling them, quote, I have trusted you so long with my Bible, yet you have neglected it. It lies in such houses all covered with dust and cobwebs. You care not to look into it. Is that the way you use my Bible? Well, you shall have my Bible no longer. And then he took up the Bible from his cushion and seemed as if he were going away with it, carrying it from them. And he immediately turns again. He personates the people of God. And then he falls down on his knees. He cries and pleads most earnestly, O oh Lord, whatever you do to us, take not thy Bible from us. 
kill our children, burn our houses, destroy our goods. Only spare us thy Bible. Only take not away your Bible from us. And then he personates God again to the people. Is that what you say? Well, I will try you a little longer. Here is my Bible for you. I will see how you use it, whether you will love it more, whether you will value it more, whether you will observe it more, whether you will practice it more and live more according to it. Thomas Goodwin testified that the people were deluged with their own tears. He himself got out. He was unable to mount his horse. He was so moved by these this teaching, he wept by his horse for 15 minutes, unable to mount his horse and leave. They were stirred by the truth that God is angered, that His Word is so neglected. They were moved because it was true. Well, what about you this morning? If you have a tender heart and you are honest with yourself, you would also be moved by this truth. Because this is the scandal of the church. That so many profess loudly of their love for the Word of God, but do not read the Word. Do you read the Word of God? Do you simply read the Word of God? Beyond study, beyond meditation, beyond teaching, do you read God's Word, it is clearly apparent whether a man reads the Bible or not. It is apparent. Clear as day. Just I could just hear a man talk for a few minutes and I know if he's reading the Bible or not. Garbage in, garbage out. If he, his conversation is filled with things of this world, then I know what he's doing in his private hours. But in his conversation, is sprinkled with salt. Sprinkle with the Word of God. It is obvious. This man is in the Word. If a woman, if a, if a Christian has a hunger and thirst for the Word of God, that tells me that they've been nurturing, nourishing in the Word of God in their private hours. It's like a child. If you, if you train up a child with their youth to, to eat fruits and vegetables, even when they're old, they will shy away from junk food and they will want fruits and vegetables. If you nourish a child in junk food, when the child is old, they would crave junk food. Likewise, the believer is dieting on the Word of God. He's hungry for Scripture. When the Word of God is preached, he's all ears. Right? He longs for that quiet hour, meditating on the Scriptures. So many of you profess loudly of your love for the Word of God. But let's be honest with ourselves. Simply, you are not reading the Word of God. You do not read Scripture. That is why you are living such carnal, defeated, weak Christian lives. That is why you are dying as a Christian. That is why your lives are so filled with drama. That is why you are so self-centered, so mired and living sinfully. It's simply because you're not reading the Word of God. You're feeding on junk food, which has no spiritual value to your soul. You're being deceived. 
This happened several months months ago in China, April 2004. Phony baby formula proves tragic for many poor Chinese people. It was on it was in the LA Times. When young Kylie was born in January, her mother wasn't able to breastfeed her. So the baby was given Star of the Grasslands baby milk powder. We don't have much to eat, so I can't produce milk, the mother said. By February, Kylie's head had started to puff up. Her skin turned bright red and glossy. Her eyes were reduced to slits. What the family initially thought were healthy signs of her gaining weight was actually their daughter's tiny, malnourished body screaming out for help. It turned out that several brands of infant formula sold in their province in central China were fake and contained almost no nutritional value. Although Kylie's parents switched brands after learning about the counterfeit formula last month, she is slowly recovering. Brain damage over the long term remains a concern. Officially, 13 babies died. More than 170 suffered serious malnutrition as a result of drinking fake milk, milk powder. An analysis has found the actual ingredients to be nothing more than starch, flour, and sugar. What an awful, tragic story. But it is happening in the church by Christians. They're not feeding on the pure milk of God's word, First Peter 2.2. They're nourishing on junk food, as it is said, on things that have no spiritual nourishment, no spiritual value, and therefore they're suffocating, arrested development. They're dying as Christians. In your outlines, exhortation is last, but let me share with you Pastor Rao's exhortations to four different groups of people, and then we'll conclude on practical applications. Exhortations. Let me just read to you what this esteemed pastor said years ago. First of all, the first group, these words may fall into the hands of some who can read, but never do read the Bible at all. Are you one of them? If you are, I have something to say to you. I cannot comfort you in your present state of mind. It would be mockery and deceit to do so. I cannot speak to you of peace in heaven while you treat the Bible as you do. For you are in danger of losing your soul. You are in danger because your neglect of the Bible is plain evidence that you do not love God. The health of a man's body may generally be known by his appetite. The health of a man's soul may be known by his treatment of the Bible. Now you are manifestly laboring under a sore disease. Will you not repent? I know I cannot reach your heart. I cannot make you see and make you feel these things. I cannot, I can only enter my solemn protest against your present treatment of the Word of God and lay that protest before your conscience. I do so with all my soul. Oh, beware lest you repent too late. Beware lest you put off reading the Bible until you send to the doctor in your last illness and then you will find that the Bible is a sealed book to you. 
It is dark and cloudy to your anxious soul. Beware lest you go on saying all your life, men are fine without all this Bible reading and find that length to your cost that men do very ill and they end up in hell. Beware lest the day come when you will feel, had I but honored the Bible as I as much as I have honored the newspaper, I should have comfort in my last hours. Neglecting the Bible, dear listener, I give you this plain warning. It's a plague that is present at your door. The Lord have mercy upon you. The second group, these words may be heard by some who love the Bible and believe the Bible and yet read of it very little. I fear there are many such in this day. It is a day of bustle and hurry, a day of talking, committee meetings, and public work. These things are all very well in their way, but I fear that they sometimes clip and cut short the private reading of the Bible. Does your conscience tell you that you are one of the persons I speak of? Listen to me, and I will say a few things which deserve your serious attention. You are the man that is likely to get little comfort from the Bible in time of need. Trial is a sifting season. Affliction is a searching wind which strips the leaves off the trees and brings to light the bird's nest. Now I fear that your stores of Bible consolations may one day run very low. I fear lest you should find yourself at last on very short allowance and come into the harbor weak worn and thin. You are the man that is likely never to be established in the truth. I shall not be surprised to hear that you are troubled and filled with doubt and questioning about assurance, about grace, faith, perseverance, and the like. You are not ready to fight with the weapons of God's Word Your armor does not fit well. Your sword sits loosely in your hand. You are the man that is likely to make many mistakes in life. I do not need to wonder if you have made mistakes in your marriage. If you have made mistakes about your children's education. Erred about the conduct of your household. Erred about the company you keep. Your life is filled with mistakes. The world you steer through is full of rocks and sandbanks. You are not sufficiently familiar either with the lights or the charts. (coughs) All these are uncomfortable things. I want every listener to escape them all. Take the advice I offer you today. Do not merely read your Bible a little, but read it a great deal. Colossians 3.16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Do not be a mere babe in spiritual knowledge. Seek to become well instructed in the kingdom of heaven and be continually adding new things to the old. Third group. These words may fall into the ears of someone who reads the Bible much and yet thinks he is none better for his reading. This is a crafty temptation of the devil. 
says to himself, I read the Bible and all that reading, it does me very little benefit. Do not think you are getting no good from the Bible merely because you do not see that good day by day. The greatest effects are by no means those which make the most noise and are most easily observed. The greatest effects are often silent, quiet, and hard to detect at the time they are being produced. Think of the influence of the moon upon the earth and of the air upon the human lungs. Remember how silently the dew falls and how imperceptibly the grass grows. There may be far more doing than you think in your soul by your Bible reading. The Word may be gradually producing deep impressions on your heart of which you are not at present aware. Often when the memory is retaining no facts, the character of a man is receiving some everlasting impression. Is sin becoming every ear more hateful to you? Is Christ becoming every ear more precious? Is holiness becoming every ear more lovely and more desirable in your eyes? If that is so, take courage. The Bible is doing you good though you may not be able to see it day by day. The fourth group. These words may fall into the ears of some who really love the Bible, live upon the Bible, and read it much. Are you one of these? He says, give me your attention, and I will mention a few things, which we shall do well to lay to heart for time to come. Let us resolve to read the Bible more and more every year we live. Let us try to get it rooted in our memories. Let us get it engrafted into our hearts. Let us be thoroughly well provisioned with it against the voyage of death. Let us resolve to be more watchful over our Bible reading every year that we live. Let us be jealously careful about the time we give to it and the manner that time is spent. Let us beware of omitting our daily reading without sufficient cause. Let us not be gaping and yawning and dozing over our book while we read. Let us read like a London merchant studying the city article in the Times or like a wife reading a husband's letter from a distant land. Let us be careful that we never exalt any minister or sermon or book or tract or friend above the Word of God. Cursed be that book or tract or human counsel which creeps in between us and the Bible and hides the Bible from our eyes. Once more I say, let us be very watchful. Let us resolve to honor the Bible more in our families. Let us read it morning and evening to our wives and to our children. And let not be ashamed to let men see that we do. Let us not be discouraged by seeing no good arise from it. Let us resolve to meditate more on the Bible. It is good to take with us two or three texts when we go out into the world and to turn them over and over in our minds whenever we have a little leisure. It keeps out many vain thoughts. It preserves our souls from stagnation and breeding corrupt things. It sanctifies and quickens our memories and prevents us from becoming like those ponds where the frogs live, but the fish die.
let us resolve to talk more to believers about the Bible when we meet them. Alas, the conversation of Christians when they do meet is often sadly unprofitable. How many frivolous and trifling and uncharitable things are said among the brethren. Let us bring out the Bible more and it will help to drive the devil away and keep our hearts in tune. Oh, that we may all strive so to walk together in this evil world that Jesus may often draw near and go with us. And finally, let us all Resolve to live by the Bible more and more every year that we live. Let us frequently take account of all our opinions and practices, of our habits and tempers, of our behavior in public and in private, in the world and by our firesides. Let us measure all by the Bible and resolve by God's help to conform to it. I commend all these things to the serious and prayerful attention, everyone whose hands this paper may fall, Lord grant that it may prove not to have been done in vain. Practical exhortations from this pastor for us not just to profess our love for the Word of God, but to read it. Let me close our time with four practical suggestions. First one is this. Start today. Start reading the Bible today. The way to do a thing is what? Is to do it. To start. Actually read the Bible. Open the book. And start with chapter 1, verse 1. And actually read the scriptures. Everything else is in vain if you do not take that first step. Secondly, develop a plan. What you will read. We have 50 50 copies of Robert Murray McShane's uh, one-year plan of reading the Bible with your family and in private. It's available for free in the back. Pick one up and commit 2005. I will read through the Bible. Privately and with my family, I will read this book. Plan. Plan when you will read. Determine that. Set aside that time when you will read. In the morning, afternoon, your lunch break, dinner time. There is no rule of thumb where you have to read in the morning. That's legalism. Or you have to read it in the afternoon or you have to read it at night. But set aside time, a time when you will read the Bible. Set aside a place. And make sure it's a quiet place where you're alone. You can guarantee separation from distractions where you're alone with your book, with the Bible. And set aside how much. I mean, be realistic. Don't start first day reading 10 chapters. And then a month later, you go to chapter 11. Day by day. I mean, start with 20 minutes a day. You do 20 minutes, you'll read the Bible in 2005. Genesis to Revelation. 20 minutes a day. And then finally, get a good Bible. We buy many things in the world. They're all fleeting and trivial. 
Even Christian books, you read it once, you'll put it down. But the Bible is our main book, is our one book. I mean, get a nice leather-bound, right, bonded leather Bible, print your name on it, highlight it carefully. I buy a good version. I recommend the English Standard Version. That's the version that I read and I preach from. Get a good Bible. Thirdly, orient your whole life around the centrality of the Word of God. Have your whole life revolve around the reading of God's Word. Consider our worship service on Sundays. We've done that. The Roman Catholic Church has the pulpit to the side and the communion table is in the middle. And the Protestants said, no, the high point of the service is when the Word of God is preached. The Word of God is prominent, is preeminent. They move the pulpit to the middle. And that's what we have done. We've evolved the whole church service. The, the, we've assigned the seating around the pulpit, the preaching of the Word of God. We've made sure that there is no distraction when the Word of God is preached. I saw one pulpit. Behind the pulpit, there is this plasma screen with lights and, and, and streaming and colors. We don't want that. We don't want any distraction away from the Word of God. We don't want anything to take our attention away from Scripture. We want our minds to be fixed on the Word. Likewise, have that mentality in, the, in, your, in your lives. Have the Bible be in the middle of your life. Cut out your distractions. If you find that you are a morning person, you're most alert in the morning, spend that time in the Word. If you find that you're a night person, that's when you're most alert. Right? Do away with the TV. Do away with frivolous activities. Read the Word of God. You know, do away with the excuse that is not warranted, that you are too busy, that you have no time. You and I know that is a lie. You and I know that is not the truth. You say, oh James, it's too hard. I can't understand the Bible. It is too difficult. It is not about IQ. It is about DQ. Desire quotient. If you have the desire, you will understand it. You will study it. You will comprehend its truths. Orient your whole life, your whole family, the schedule of your children around your reading of the Bible so that you will read it. And then finally, you have to fight for your time to read the Bible. You have to fight for it. Pastor John Piper said this, Almost all the forces in our culture are trivializing. If you want to stay alive as a Christian, you have to fight for the time to be with God. You have to fight for it. Life will not give it to you. will not hand you time in a platter. You have to fight tooth and nail for every hour that you have with the Word of God, that you might be alone with the Scriptures. Yes, believers love God's Word. But again, do you read the Word of God? If and when the sermon is preached in the future, may the testimony in the privacy of your heart 
May it be yes. I love the Bible. And I do read it so. Let's pray. If I may just give you a minute to respond to the Word of God privately and personally before the Lord. And I'll close our time in prayer. Father, we do think meanly of ourselves because of our neglect for the Word of God. Oh Lord, we ask for your forgiveness. We confess that our hunger and desire for the Word is weak and that in our personal and private practices for many here, it is non-existent. It is apparent by the lives that we live that we are not reading your Word Oh God, who are we that we should enjoy such privileges of salvation, such privileges of our relationship with you, and at the same time, turn away and neglect your scriptures. Lord, that you would be merciful upon us. Lord, that the Holy Spirit would grant us freedom in this area. And may we be lovers of the word of God, not just in our emotions, not just in our desires, but it be clearly evident that we are lovers of God's word by our practice. Lord, open our eyes to see the wonderful things that are in the law of God. May our hearts, may our lives be planted by streams of water that will be well nourished, that we will produce fruit in season, our leaves will not wither, that whatever we do will prosper as believers because we are planted near the word of God. Lord, may you grant us, Lord, much discipline, much self-control, much courage to spend much time in, in your scriptures that we might run the path of its commands. In Jesus' name we pray.